Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Caroline Binham. Joining me in the studio today is Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Also down the line, we'll be talking to Simeon Kerr, our golf correspondent. And in our segment from New York, we'll be hearing from Alistair Gray, our US financial correspondent. First, we'll be discussing payments processor WorldPay's £9.3 billion merger with its US rival Vantif. Then we'll be talking about a behind-the-scenes boycott by Abu Dhabi of Western banks that have large shareholdings by Qatari investors. And finally, we'll hear from New York about US credit card wars. Emma, you were looking at WorldPay's blockbuster merger with Vantif, and it seems pretty transformative. Can you explain why? Sure. So WorldPay is the UK's largest payments processor. And by that, I mean it provides companies such as retailers with the technology to accept card and online payments. So this merger with Vantiv, the US's largest payments processor, creates the largest such company globally in terms of the number of transactions processed. And this deal comes at a time when merger and acquisition activity in the sector is really hotting up against a backdrop of more people globally switching to online payments and e-commerce. And this is really transforming what was once dubbed a bit of a sleepy backwater of finance. So the payments processing industry just sitting within the back office of banks largely. Now it's emerging as a sector in its own right and it's experiencing exponential growth. So can we expect more of these kind of combinations? Certainly, there have been a few other such deals recently. But what's perhaps interesting about this takeover by Vantiv is it served as a bit of a role reversal. So actually, it was WorldPay this time a year and a half ago that was seen as the potential acquirer. However, following the Brexit vote and the subsequent slump in sterling, this made the term slightly untenable, which left WorldPay as more of a target. So it's not really a merger of equals then, it's a takeover. Exactly. However, there was some debate in the preceding weeks because the negotiation was actually delayed following some intervention from investors in WorldPay. He wanted to see certain terms struck as part of the deal. So one of them is that the UK investors in WorldPay wanted a secondary listing in London so that they could continue to invest in the company and partake in the upside of the share price. And the other thing they wanted to see is an international headquarters for WorldPay situated in London as well because Vantiv is a US-based group located in Cincinnati. And the combined group, which has a value of about £22 billion, will also retain the WorldPay name. So it lives on. It lives on indeed, and in a hot sector to boot. OK, thank you, Emma. Moving on to our second item, Simeon, you broke the story this week about Abu Dhabi unofficially freezing out Western banks that have close ties to Qatar. Can you talk us through a little bit of the background here? In early June, Abu Dhabi is one of four Arab states that launched a boycott of Qatar, accusing the gas-rich state of supporting terrorism, which they deny. 
At the moment, what has been done is that the transport links to Qatar from those four countries, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain and Egypt, have been cut. Trade ties have been cut. Direct airline flights have been cut. That was officially what was done. They threatened companies that were going to be trying to do work both in Qatar and, say, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. They might also be targeted. That was a threat that has been pulled back on after Western pressure. But it's still somewhat on the table. And certainly companies are working around this or they're sort of making contingency plans to deal with being told by these huge economic powers, Saudi Arabia and UAE, that they have to choose between their markets and Qatar. So that's a big issue for business. Beyond that, I've been just seeing UAE, Saudi banks pull out deposits from Qatari banks. Other stuff is happening beyond the original travel boycott. Unofficially, there's still a lot of anger in places like Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia. There's a deep resentment across the Gulf at the moment, and it appears that individual entities within these countries are taking matters into their own hands to a certain extent, trying to follow official policy and implementing that in their day-to-day decision-making. So we saw that banks such as Deutsche Bank, Barclays, Credit Suisse might be invited to bid for work. It seems at the moment they're being told, when they're asking their contacts in Abu Dhabi what's going on, they're being told, well, listen, you're not going to get anything for a while given what's going on politically with Qatar at the moment. And obviously that means that it might miss out on pretty lucrative mandates. I mean, we've got the forthcoming IPO of Abu Dhabi's national oil company, no? Yeah, I and mean, that's the one that's very much in focus at the moment. It was the bidding for that process which brought all these issues to the fore. These banks will be very worried about Abu Dhabi, which is some IPOs coming up, a lot of debt work. But they'll be particularly concerned whether this was going to happen in Saudi Arabia, where over the next few years under the new crown prince, they plan to IPO Aramco, the state energy company. And there's up to 95 other privatisations planned. So far, it seems there's no problem in Saudi Arabia. They've been told it'll be okay, But certainly in Abu Dhabi, there's a lot more concern. Interesting. And for now, this is an unofficial behind the scenes move that people have taken upon themselves rather than it being mandated by the local government. Do you have any insights, Simeon, about how the banks are responding to this? Well, at the moment, it's very early days. They've only had a few weeks to digest this. There's a lot of concern. They're speaking to officials and trying to figure out how this might work itself out in the future. Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank have significantly bigger exposure to these countries than, say, Barclays, which has been receding from the region after many of its problems with Qatar, which have been reported about as well. Credit Suisse and Deutsche, they've got deep contacts in the region. I think they're hoping that this will just be a short-term phenomenon and that quickly there could be a new modus operandi between them and these states and, and moving forward, they can go back to where they were before. That's what they're hoping for at the moment. But feelings are very raw in the Gulf and it's going to be difficult for them to navigate this one. Thank you, Sim. And for our third item, Alistair Gray, our US financial correspondent, has been talking to Amy Keane about some of the lavish incentives being offered by US banks to lure credit card customers. So outstanding US credit card debt has just hit a new record at more than a trillion dollars and customers are being wooed to open up new cards by some pretty lavish rewards programs. Alistair Gray, the US financial correspondent here in New York, has done a piece breaking down the US credit card market. Alistair, what rewards are on offer for these consumers who are signing up for new cards? Well, a whole host of free stuff is available for uh, consumers, especially for those who really know what they're doing. There's a sort of cottage industry of websites and so on that detail how to maximize credit card rewards. But I mean, it's a pretty standard thing in US culture now that people are getting some pretty decent 
deals. A good friend of mine, for instance, just racked up about two and a half thousand dollars worth of stuff. He can use that towards hotels and uh, flights and other things. That's with Chase. Another very standard thing is for just cash back on every purchase. A card I've got, for instance, this gives me one and a half percent cash back on everything I buy. And you don't have to have a particularly fantastic credit score for that. Even that's just a really standard card. So how are banks able to justify these lavish programs they're using to woo new customers? Well, the overall returns on credit cards, despite those pretty lavish rewards, are still very good. The return on assets for the credit card business is still about three times higher than retail banking overall. Customers have to pay fees. My friend's card that I just referenced, that's the Chase Sapphire Reserve, which has had a lot of attention for its especially lavish sign-up bonus. Customers are charged 450 bucks a year for that, although that's going to be dwarfed for most people by the scale of the rewards. More importantly for the issuer is that the issuer charges fees on every transaction. Every payment that you make, they take a cut from the merchant, um, typically of about 2%. That's in stark contrast to elsewhere in the world where these things are much more tightly regulated. And also in contrast to US debit cards, which have much more restrictions on the fees. Banks can also make money in other ways, notably if consumers are not particularly savvy and actually don't pay their balance down every month, then you get whacked by a very high rate of interest. You know, more than 20% APR is not uncommon. So despite these high rewards, it does apparently still make sense. So it's a pretty lucrative segment of the business. How sustainable is this? Well, it has been, but the returns are falling And there were increasing questions from investors and some executives about how sustainable these are. So the banks are trying to deepen their relationships to ensure that customers or try to encourage the customers to stay with them. Chase, for instance, is offering 100,000 points to any credit card customer who takes out a mortgage with Chase. Bank of America is about to launch a new card that has very extremely generous rewards, but only if you've got really quite high balances, 20 grand bare minimum with the bank. Chase, for example, earlier this year actually halved that very generous sign-up bonus on the Sapphire Reserve from 100,000 to 50,000 points. So there are signs that we've perhaps passed the peak of the most generous schemes, although banks still are piling into this sector. City, for instance, very recently made US credit cards a big focus of the turnaround strategy for the entire bank. So is there any concern on behalf of banks about bad debt? You mentioned at the top that U.S. consumer credit card debt has hit a brand new record. Yeah, delinquencies are on the rise. They're still relatively low by historic standards, but some economists are worried about that because unemployment is low. And if you're seeing strains, even while the economy is in reasonably good shape and people are at work, what's going to happen if and when unemployment does rise. It's a concern. There are other potential threats in the horizon as well. I referenced earlier the merchant fees. That is ultimately actually why banks or how banks can justify the level of rewards. There's no particular sign that that's going to change right now, especially given the Trump administration's deregulation agenda. But regulators elsewhere in the world have clamped down on these merchant charges and Many people think it's really only a matter of time. In the the medium to long term, there will be some kind of crackdown on that. All right. Thanks, Alistair. 
And that's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Emma, Simeon and Alistair for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.